All right, we're back in our, well actually we're continuing it. Heath continued it last week, but we are continuing with our sermon series for the summer on the will of God. And we're right in the, this is the end of a little four sermon series where we find out, um, we've been diving into those phrases in the New Testament where God says, this is the will of God, this. And so we've considered salvation and sanctification and spirituality. And this morning we want to come to the topic of submission to, to government specifically, submission to authority. So uh, this, is, this is where we've been. We've, we talked about before we got into this particular four sermons, we, we mentioned that the will of God is a, is a somewhat complicated theme in Scripture. It's complex. It's, it's not difficult to understand, but it is complex in the sense that we spoke of the will of God in two different ways. Scripture talks about the will of God as his secret plan, and it also talks about the, the will of God as his revealed commands. And in these particular sermons, we've been looking at his revealed commands. This is God's will, that you be saved, that you be sanctified and, and walk in sexual purity, that you rejoice, that you give thanks, that you pray without ceasing, and this morning, that you be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. But we've also spoken that the will of God is, 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 is a secret plan as well. And Peter even refers to that. He refers to both aspects of God's will in this particular letter. While we're going to be focusing on the revealed command, I just want to show you that in 1 Peter, he has this idea of the, of the will of God as being both a secret plan that he himself is accomplishing and revealed commands that he intends us to obey. First of all, we see the will of God spoken as his revealed command in our text this morning in 1 Peter 2.15, where Peter says, Such is the will of God that by doing right you might silence the ignorance of foolish people. He also says in chapter 4 verse 2 that we are to live the rest of the time in our flesh, no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. So obviously that, has to, that involves his revealed commands. We can't obey a secret plan, but we can re- obey commands that are revealed. On the other hand, Peter refers to the will of God in two other verses, not as his moral instruction, clearly, but in a way of describing the state of affairs that he sovereignly brings about. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, we read, For it's better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so it's this context that we wrestle with even in our culture today. We have God working out his sovereign purpose. Some of that purpose includes the suffering of his people. And yet he has revealed specific commands that he calls us to obey. And both of those, both his secret plan and his revealed commands, are what is called the will of God in Scripture. So with that sort of serving as background, let's come to our text this morning, focusing on this final aspect of the will of God, being submissive to Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Now in our contemporary cultural moment, nothing quite tends to stir the emotions more than politics. An election season like the one we are currently in is an opportunity for us as Christians to stand out as a thoughtful, fair-minded, loving, and sometimes prophetic minority. To the degree that believers in Jesus can align themselves with Jesus' approach to government 
and the sharp disagreements surrounding them, then the world will take notice. More important, the world might have an opportunity to become a better world. (laughs) Similarly, Christians that are wishing to follow the whole scripture and the whole Jesus in our whole lives, including the realm of government and politics, we'll eventually find ourselves standing in a bit of a no-man's land, often alone and always misunderstood. As one friend of mine says, the most, most faithful Christians are going to be too liberal for their hardcore conservative friends and too conservative for their hardcore liberal friends. Oftentimes, the harder it takes for someone to figure out where we land politically, the more likely we're be, we're, it is that we're following the orders of a different king. This was certainly the case in Peter's instructions to the Christians in the first century, where he calls them in verse 9 of this very chapter, an elect nation, a people of God's own possession. And our reason for existence being to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 11, two verses before our chapter, or our verses this morning, Peter reminds us that we are strangers here. We are aliens in this world. And our goal is to live in such a way that shows off God. To live in such a way that God is glorified. But a Christianity that makes no visible difference simply cannot show God. It's not true Christianity. And that's why Peter starts to give some examples of what true Christianity looks like in the hostile world of this day. And it's not reckless, and it's not violent. It's measured, and it's obedient. John Piper says, The most important thing this text, that is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13-25, through does is put all of our social and political life into relationship to God. The Bible is not a book about how to get along in the world. It's a book inspired by God about how to live to God. The aim of life, including our social and political life, is to live to God, to live with God in view, to live under his authority, to live on him like we live on air and food and water, to live for his good reputation. Now I want to propose that the most important question to ask as a Christian in times like ours, is not, is God on our side, but rather, are we on his? This text helps us to show us in relationship to government if we are indeed on God's side and we're living in a way that's pleasing to him. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Number one, three three aspects by way we know that we are on God's side when it comes to issues of government and politics. Number one, we honor authority in action and attitude. We honor authority in action and attitude. You say, Pastor Mark, which ones? Well, that very question implies that you are not honoring authority in action and attitude. In fact, Peter makes it really, really clear which ones. Everyone. Every human institution. He says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In a day of anti-authority like we live in, we must say that God is in favor of government. It's his idea. In addition to the family and the church, 
Government is one of the three institutions of authority that God established for the good of society. We need to remember that, that government, though fallen and though infected with various forms of sin because humans lead it, so it will be sinful in terms of the human actions that are displayed in it, but nevertheless, the institution is established by God. Jesus paid taxes. He encouraged his disciples to do the same. Paul recognized and encouraged Christians to submit since he knew in Romans 13 that the government were ministers of God. The Bible highlights God-fearing men and women who served in public office. Just think of Deborah as a judge in Israel or Joseph as a prime minister in Egypt or Daniel as working in the court of Nebuchadnezzar or Nehemiah as a trusted official of a Persian king or Jesus who gave high praise to the Roman Artaxerxes who was in a, in a, in a, a Roman official who demonstrated exemplary faith. So we have to begin here. We have to begin at Romans 13 that says it most clearly that God has final authority and that he appoints subordinate human authorities to act on his behalf in matters of law and justice. Therefore, God expects his people to obey all human authority. It does not matter if we agree with them or we trust them or we think they are crazy. Obedience to those in authority is obedience to God. God delights in authority structures from marriage to family to state to schools, you name it. God orders the world of men through people who have a responsibility and authority to make decisions and to enforce them. Order and structure preserve us from destroying each other. Christians value authority. We are not anarchists. We know order is a good God-appointed thing in a world of sinners. We know that bad government is better than a good mob any day. Parents, teachers, bosses, government leaders, even leaders in the church, when they have rightful authority, are to be honored and submitted to. A spirit of humble respect to those in authority is to characterize the Christian. As Christians, we need to be praying for, honoring, speaking well of, and submitting to leadership. Romans 13, remember, was written to Christians who were living under the heavy, anti-religious, violent fist of the Roman Caesar, saying that submitting to government, except when it violates conscience and the word of God to do so, is a moral imperative. And so is restraining the tongue when we're tempted to curse or speak ill of this leader or that leader. I'm reminded of what John Wesley once wrote the church in the midst of a pretty heated political season when he told the following, For people who will vote, I urge them to vote for those they judge most worthy, and to speak no evil against the person they voted against, and to take care that their spirits are not sharpened against people who voted on the other side. I think that is the spirit of 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, that we are to honor the Lord's, for the Lord's sake, every human institution. But then we come to a passage like verse 17. Look there. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Really? Honor everyone? Everyone? I mean, the world honors people because you get something in return from them. But brothers and sisters, not the Christian. The believer honors people because they're in the image of God. Love the brotherhood, he says. That's a special love for the church. Fear God and honor the emperor. I mean, honor the emperor? 
Really, Peter? Don't you know who he is and what he's doing? The king or the emperor that Peter is referring to here would likely have been Nero, the one who put Peter to death for no particular reason outside of his own hatred. A synopsis of Nero's government might be helpful at this point. Nero was born in AD 37. His great uncle Claudius was the emperor, and after his father's death, his mother married her uncle, the emperor Claudius, and she persuaded him to name Nero his successor rather than his own son. So when Claudius died, it was thought that she had him poisoned. Nero ascended to the throne at age 17, repeatedly resisted his controlling mother, and ultimately had her killed. He spent extravagantly on his own artistic pursuits and behaved in ways that were thought inappropriate, even by the tolerant standards allowed to Roman emperors. He soon began executing his opponents, even by the tolerant standards of what some might consider um, legitimate execution. And he did it just for people speaking badly against him at a party. Another politician was sent into exile after he wrote a book that was critical of the Senate. More rivals were executed as Nero worked to advance his own powerful position. Christians then fell into his disfavor, and so he began torturing and executing them as well. Peter and Paul were both among his victims. In due course, the empire revolted. Nero took his own life in the year 68 when he was only 30 years old. Origen says Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he himself had desired to suffer. And writing from Rome and living under the tyranny of a maniac who would later literally crucify him, Peter says, honor that guy. Brothers and sisters, in many ways, our country is in danger of revolution. The real sins of racism and abusive leadership are being exploited to fuel revolution. Real abuses in the past and the present are being used as the pretext for a complete overthrow of the natural order that God has ordained, whether that authority be in marriage or parenting or gender or church or government. In other words, real injustices, and they are real, are being abused to justify even greater injustices. And they are real too. And we as Christians must speak clearly if we would promote reform and avoid a revolution. Thomas Kidd, Christian historian, writes, Politically, the radical left and the hardcore right both share a profound streak of anarchism. Nothing is working, so let's burn it all down. As David French explains, the political continuum has morphed from a straight line right and left into a horseshoe bend. The further the extremes go, the closer they get. And as one theologian said, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Friends, the more intense our times become, the more God is preparing us for a purpose. Not so that we would win, but that we would be living proof that Jesus is better than winning. Which is what it means to win, because he wins. And it actually does win. When it comes to politics, we have to understand some things. Why do we do it? Do we do it because the times are right? Or do we do it because the circumstances are appropriate? No, we do it for God's sake. 
We behave honorably and we submit because we live as servants of God. This is what Peter says. Look what he says in verse 16. Live as people who are free, living as servants of God. And he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Why do most people submit? They submit because they have to or because they agree with the one to whom they are submitting, which in case you don't realize, that's not submission, that's agreement. (laughs) Either they know if they don't, they're going to be punished, or they have something to gain. And Peter says, Christian, you're free from both. You're free from that kind of submission. You're free from the captivities that control the world's obedience. Because now you got a new motivation. You are servants of God and you submit to human laws for God's sake, for the gospel's sake. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all who's subject to none but God alone. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. See, the key to that paradox is God. God is the authority. Freed from, by God from slavery to all human perceptions and institutions and sent by God freely and submissively into those authorities for his sake, that's what we're called to do. We submit to institutions and authorities not because they're always in the right, but for the Lord's sake. We do it for Jesus, not for the authority itself. Christians do not submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it or because they have compliant personalities or because the institutions have coercive powers. We do not look first at ourselves to see what we feel like doing, nor do we look first at the institution like government to see that if, if, if there are consequences for not submitting. We look to God first. We consult God about the institution and we submit for his sake. So in this way, Christian submission to the institutions of this world becomes an act of tribute to God, to God's authority over the institutions of the world. You look at a king, you look at a governor, you look at a magistrate in the eye and you say, I submit to you, I honor you, but not for your sake. I honor you for God's sake. I honor you because God owns you and rules over you and has sovereignly raised you up for a limited season and given you a form of delegated leadership to whom you are accountable to him for. For his sake and for his glory and because of his rightful authority over you, I honor you. Let me give you one illustration of this. Remember the band of secular and religious leaders that tried to trick Jesus with a question? You say, that happened all the time. It did happen all the time. But remember when they came to him with this question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, they ask? And then they hand him a coin. And the inscription on the coin says, Tiberius, king, son of God, Augustus Maximus, high priest. And with this inscription, the Roman emperor is claiming deity and thus absolute authority over all the people in his empire. Rome was a totalitarian empire in which defectors, those who would not bow to the sovereign lordship of the state, would be executed on a cross. Jesus gives an unexpected answer. He holds up this coin that is claiming Roman deity and says, whose image is on the coin? You see why it was controversial? Should we give taxes to somebody who claims to be God? He says, Caesar's, 
is on there. Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. In other words, the coin that's imprinted with Caesar's image belongs to him. So give it to him. But you, all of you, you're imprinted with God's image. And so you belong to God. The coin is Caesar's, so give your coin up to him. You're God's, give yourself to God. How brilliant. Not only does Jesus blunt the trap they set for him, but he establishes the proper ordering of things when it comes to kings and kingdoms. On the one hand, the citizens of God's kingdom must endeavor to be the very best and most exemplary citizens of earthly kingdoms. Even power-hungry leaders like Caesar should feel the positive ripple effect of Christian love toward people and places. However, none but God is entitled to absolute unfettered loyalty. God alone is king, and his kingdom is not of this world. So when God's kingdom and earthly kingdoms collide, render yourself to God and only to God. So when it comes to politics, the Bible gives us no reason to believe that Jesus would side completely with one political viewpoint over another. He didn't in his own day. Rather, when it comes to kings and kingdoms, Jesus sides with himself, brothers and sisters. He always does. To equate left-leaning or right-leaning politics with Christian, Christianity itself fails to honor the biblical teaching. Jesus has affirmations as well as sharp critiques for those who bow to donkeys and elephants. As for government itself, God created it. Therefore, government itself is a good and needed thing. But still, the kingdom of God is not and was never intended to be of this world. It is not. In this world and for this world, yes. Of this world, no. Under Jesus, political loyalties lose their ultimacy. As Chuck Colson famously said in the 1980s of Ronald Reagan, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Lord, save us from caring more about left and right than right and wrong. It may surprise us to know that there was political diversity among Jesus' disciples. You ever thought about this? Included in the twelve are Simon and Matthew. Who were they? Simon's a zealot. Matthew's a tax collector. This is significant because zealots worked against the government actively while tax collectors work for the government actively. You might say that Simon was a right-wing, small-government guy who thought the, the state should keep out of people's business, and Matthew was a left-wing, big-government guy who made a career of collecting taxes for the state. As far as we can tell, Simon remained a zealot, and Matthew remained a tax collector even after they started following Jesus. Despite their opposing political viewpoints, Matthew and Simon were friends, and Matthew wanted us to know this. That's why he included it in his gospel. Matthew learned to love Rome less. Simon learned to love Rome more. They both learned to love Jesus most. Jesus taught and modeled very little for his disciples about relating to Rome. He rarely allowed them to get drawn into political disputes and compared to everything, compared to everything else to what, to what he taught about. Where do you see him addressing politics in the Gospels? He hardly does at all. Why doesn't he? Because his kingdom is not of this world. That's why. He rarely speaks about Rome. The Gospels focus mostly on building the kingdom that's not of this world. 
Matthew's emphasis on a tax collector and a zealot living in community together suggests a hierarchy of loyalties, namely to Jesus himself. See, our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to any earthly agenda, political or otherwise. We should feel at home with people who share our faith but not our politics even more than we do with people who share our politics and not our faith. There's your test. Who do you feel more at home with? If this is not our experience, then we may very well be rendering to Caesar things that belong to God. John Stone Street, commentator for the Colson Center, writes, Our problem is cultural. We are a culture that is largely ungovernable right now. We have real issues culturally when it comes to public virtue and morality. We can't shout and elect our way out of this. We've got real problems upstream from politics. The ultimacy of politics in our culture is startlingly, start, starting, starts. I'll get it out. The ultimacy of politics in our culture is startling, while the efficacy of politics has never been more limited. It's never been more important in people's minds, and it's never been less effective. There are rules to civilizations, and we've broken most of them, and we're not going to fix them upstream. Ray Ortland comments and says, To be a Christian, then, is to abandon all swagger-driven, domineering, win-at-all-costs attitudes that use Jesus but don't follow him. To be faithful to Christ, we must refuse to be recruited for extremist agendas on both sides of the political and cultural divide. The Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, and so the Spirit will descend on us and our church, not in the form of political power, moral superiority, or doctrinal perfection, but in the form of Christian gentleness a path forward marked by the beauty of Jesus himself. That's the longest point, number one. We submit, we honor in our actions and our attitudes. Number two, we do good when treated fairly and unfairly. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think that what Peter means here is that God delights in behavior that reflects utter reliance on him and his grace when the supports of the world are knocked out. When a Christian, out of conscience before God, looks to God for strength and courage and hope and peace in a time of suffering, and as a result, bears suffering patiently, God sees it as a tribute to his grace. God is shown in it. And when God is shown, God is pleased. Because what the world looks at is says, you should have no reason to be happy. But you are. Why are you happy? Because God. Oh, God must be important. And it's only unfair treatment that reveals those kinds of things. We see at the beginning of verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. See, suffering unjustly in this world is not a coincidence for us as Christians. It's a calling. 
He says it in chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose, this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. So you see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a number of responses to suffering that could, could have happened. One is passive acquiescence, where many of the apostles flee. Another was violent retaliation, where Peter responds with taking the sword and cutting off the soldier's ear. But Jesus, as Messiah, gave a distinct revelation of God's intention for us to engage our suffering. We don't do it through violent retaliation, and we don't do it through passive acquiescence. But through nonviolent and agape engagement, an active, loving, self-sacrificial engagement with suffering in order to expose injustice and ultimately speak of a kingdom that's coming to end it once and for all when Christ the King returns. Another way to engage is in 1 Peter 3.15. As we suffer, we'll be asked, what's the source of your hope? Have you been asked that lately? It will be a question that will be increasingly asked. And you know why we don't get it asked that much? Because it looks like we're hoping in the same things the world is. For our Christian witness to be taken seriously in this increasingly secular, pluralistic West, we have to learn the art of this. Number one, remaining true to our beliefs and convictions. Number two, genuinely loving, listening to, and serving those who do not share our beliefs and convictions and consistently doing both at the same time. World won't do that. The world will not do that. Only we as Holy Spirit and dwelt blood-bought people have the power and resources to do that kind of love. Because we live in the midst of cancel culture. You agree or you're out. Christians don't do that. You don't agree, I'm going to love you. We may not agree, but I'm going to love you. You might not, you might hate me for loving you. That's okay. You can hate me. But we don't, we don't stop telling truth and we don't stop loving. Now, we're going to have a tendency to be on one of those sides of the, the equation. We'll either love at the expense of truth or speak truth at the expense of love. We'll either be jerks for Jesus by speaking the truth at the expense of love and people will not see a transformed life. Or we'll love at the expense of truth in which we'll capitulate and compromise to every cultural way and, and, and people won't see any difference. Either way, there's no difference. The world, the world capitulates and the world gets angry. Christians are the only ones who don't capitulate and refuse to get angry. <laughs> we can be righteously angry in prayer, but we don't lash out at our enemies. I think Jesus had something to say about how we're supposed to treat those who don't like us. So if we don't value this combination, but instead, instead of being a light to the culture, then we'll risk being products of it. And this is why we're always pressed, brothers and sisters. We are always being pressed into the mold of the world. And don't think you can just get pressed into the mold of the world one way. You can get pressed into the world by immorality or rabid morality. The, you, can get, you can get pressed into the mold of the world by taking on its, its attitudes, even though the actions might be good. But we can be just as worldly doing that. If we cling doggedly to our convictions, but we fail to love and listen and serve those who do not share them, then we're products of a modern, moralistic 
Pharisee culture, which is all around us. It's not a gospel culture. But if we do the opposite, we become products of a capitulating Sadducee culture, which is also not a gospel culture. Sadducees and Pharisees are alive and well. They're all around us. Those who capitulate and those who get angry. Truth without grace is unwelcoming and shaming, but grace without truth is cowardly and enabling. Only when we combine grace and truth do we rightly embody the gospel. See, effective Christian witness, especially when the prevailing tone in virtually all of our public discourse is outrage, not civility, then this requires Christians to adapt an ironic tone that is going to be completely counter-cultural. And I encourage you, there's been a new statement that's released called the Philadelphia Statement. Uh, it was put together by the Alliance Defending Freedom and also a number of Christian writers. And I've heard really good things about it. I've read some of it. Um, just about, it's just a statement about how Christians are going to engage in public discourse. How we're not going to be like the world. We're going we're gonna to be kind even as we disagree. And we're going to love people. And so I encourage you to look that up and read that and begin praying that even for your own heart in these days that we would be the kind of people who don't compromise but nevertheless speak the truth in love. Number three, finally, we follow Christ as our suffering substitute and shepherd. We follow Christ as our suffering substitute and shepherd. Look at verse 21 again, the second half. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, enduring unjust suffering patiently shows God because it makes the suffering of Christ real to people. People can't see Jesus suffering anymore. You know how they see Jesus suffering now? In the suffering of his people. That's how they see Jesus suffering now. We see in verse 22, Peter tells us the way, the manner in which we're to behave. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, when you endure unjust suffering, you are not saying justice doesn't matter. Let me say that again. When you endure unjust suffering, you are not saying that justice doesn't matter. You are saying that God is the final judge who will settle all accounts justly. Your abuser will not have the last say. God will have the last say. This is why we don't need to have the last say. That's why Jesus didn't have the last say. He did. It's called resurrection. That's the last say. The power of an indestructible life has the last, day, last say. And that's going to be your last say too. When you stand with him on that day, resurrected and glorified. <laughs> the whole universe will know who was right then. But we want to bring the kingdom in now. We don't defer to God often or to his day. As the crowds panicked and gasped for power, Jesus sat quietly and non-defensively in the garden. Resolved and ready to die as he awaited his unjust sentence from the Roman state. Panic and grasping for power is the way of the world, brother and sister. Panic and grasping for power is the way of the world. If you say, oh, no, it isn't, then why didn't Jesus do it? Why didn't Jesus do it? 
He could have, but he didn't. Aren't you glad he didn't? We wouldn't be here if he did. If he avoided the cross, he tried to dodge it, we'd have no atonement. We'd have no source of salvation. But he didn't. He submitted himself to unjust treatment. Remaining calm and loving and non-defensive, no matter what the political outcome, is the way of Jesus and of his followers who have their kingdoms rightly ordered. So then if you are devastated or irate over the outcome of an election, relax. Relax. Elections are important, but they're not ultimate. We only need and already have one Messiah, and he did not lose his election. Okay? That should not be hard for Christians to affirm. He didn't lose it. It wasn't up for negotiation. But listen, if you're ecstatic about an election result, relax. Take inventory. We only need and already have one Messiah, and he didn't win that election. The kingdom of God is above this world and is not of this world. God plays by a different set of rules. His ways are often contrary to ours and always higher and better than ours. Now we think about, I've mentioned this before, but about how little Jesus and the apostles ranted against and panicked over the secular, anti-religious, bloodthirsty, and power-thirsty Caesars of their day. But think about it. When face-to-face with Pilate, the governor, who had the power to crucify or set him free, Jesus said, you wouldn't have a lick of power if it wasn't given to you from God. You wouldn't have a lick of power if it wasn't given to you from God. About Herod, the most powerful leader in the land, Jesus called him a fox, a term of derision. This was not a term of endearment. It was not a term of flattery. It seemed more like a flippant dismissal, even as he was on his way to the cross. And to us, Jesus never said, stand up for your rights. Instead, and into a hostile, anti-religious, political climate, he said, blessed are the persecuted. Now, that doesn't mean, now I know we live in a different culture, okay? We have rights. We should speak for them. I'm not saying that. But when it comes, push comes to shove, that's what I'm talking about. When push comes to shove and it's your rights or suffering, you suffer. You suffer. Now, obviously, we advocate in the public square. We, we speak truth. We share our voice. We, we, uphold, we strive to uphold the values of our Constitution. I'm not saying any of that. You don't ignore that. Our, govern, our government's founded on it. We need to call it government to account to those things. I'm not saying anything like that. But I'm saying when push comes to shove, we're willing to take it on the chin because we have a higher loyalty and a higher kingdom. So your compliance is not indifference to politics or indifference to justice. But it's a way of saying the safest place for retaliatory justice is in God's hands, not mine. The powerful cry of my heart that I get my rights is handed over to God. If I am to be vindicated, it will be God who vindicates me when he has tried and purged me duly through suffering. Now let me close with three brief comments of application. Number one, God's will includes our suffering. God's will includes our suffering. Does God will the unjust suffering of his people? Of course. In verse 21, he says, you were called to this. 
God wills this because he knows the best way for us to bring glory to him. Sometimes by miraculously escaping suffering and sometimes, more often, by graciously bearing suffering so that we do not, that we do not deserve from men because we trust in God. God often wills that we suffer unjustly and that we bear it by his grace and for his glory. Why? Because there's power in unearned suffering. It has the power to bring about a redemptive transformation, not only in the sufferer, but also in the person, suffer, person inflicting the suffering. It is a power that we see revealed primarily in the cross of Jesus when Christ himself set an example of not passively just accepting suffering, but rather actively and nonviolently engaging in justice and suffering when it came his way. So let's remember that. With very, very few exceptions, Christianity has advanced and flourished most when the state was against it. And it has languished and suffered most when the state was for it. Behold the Middle Ages. Christians in the West must understand the relative ease of our experience of following Christ as unusual in world history. The freedoms, comforts, and safety that we enjoy make us like unicorns to most of our brethren around the world. And the, and the history of the church. Our brothers and sisters across the globe expect and experience violence, oppression, and death while we get our feelings hurt, gripe about our freedoms, withdraw from people relationally, and become hostile when someone mildly criticizes us for our faith. The entire New Testament was brought into the world by an oppressed and mistreated group of people who were labeled as insubordinate enemies of the state because of their open belief in Jesus, not the Roman Caesar, was Lord. Every time we open our Bibles, we must remember that almost every word was written by someone who was tortured, imprisoned, a refugee in hiding, or some combination thereof. The Apostle Paul was beaten, arrested, and unjustly incarcerated for his faith. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon from prison. Twelve, ten of the twelve disciples died as martyrs for committing a crime called preaching the gospel. Judas took his own life after betraying Jesus, and John died of an old age while in prison for preaching the gospel on a remote island. So they all didn't get out on flowery beds of ease. None of them. Number two. There will be justice for wrongdoing. There will be justice for wrongdoing. Where is justice for the wrongdoing of abusive masters? There are two answers. One is justice is in God at the last day. God will settle all accounts justly. No one's going to get away with anything. Those who hold Christ and his people in derision and do not repent will one day cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. The other answer is that God has given a measure of his authority for retaliation in this age to the state as his minister for keeping order and peace in society. 1 Peter 2.14 says that God ordains kings and governors to punish evildoers and praise those who do right. So God wills that governments punish those who cause Christians or anyone else to suffer unjustly. We may legitimately labor and pray and work for such a government. We are, I trust. But the God-given rights of the state to retaliate and punish does not nullify the God-given calling of the individual Christian to endure unjust suffering patiently. 
God's glory shines partly through his dispensing of justice through the state, but it also shines much more through the patient, God-centering suffering of his people. Thirdly and finally, God is put on display in our suffering. God is put on display in our suffering. So what is it about God that is shown through our patient, non-retaliatory endurance of unjust suffering? 1 Peter 2.9 says that our lives are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what are the excellencies of God that shine when his people meekly suffer and endure? Well, it's a long list. We don't have time to give it, but let me give you a few. When we suffer unjustly and patiently with a firm trust in God, we are surrendering some very precious things like health and comfort and ease, maybe our kids' futures. And so we are showing the excellency of God's superior preciousness to all those things. When we suffer with patient patient faith in God, we surrender much of our claim to be protected and cared for on earth, and so we show the excellency of God's superior shepherding of us. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we go without the glory of fighting back and winning, and so we show the excellency of God's superior glory that we'll share with him, with him one day and the justice of his throne that will one day settle all accounts. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we seem to take a tremendous risk with our life, the only life most people believe we will have and enjoy. And yet, when we behave such a way, we show that he is faithful and trustworthy to give us the better life that he promised. We seem to throw away away our one chance for happiness by not fighting for more comforts here. And so we show the excellency of God's power to raise us from the dead as a faithful creator and one who has all dominion in the universe. And finally, when we endure unjust suffering meekly by trusting in God, we acknowledge that we're still sinners and we're not earning anything. And so we show the excellency of God's grace. Peter says to us in conclusion, brothers and sisters of Heritage Baptist Church, we were the rebels who once resisted authority. The servants who rebelled against our rightful master the unjust ones who rejected the rightful rule of God. Jesus was the Lord who submitted to death, the master who became a servant, the rightful ruler who suffered our injustice. And by not submitting to injustice, or by submitting to injustice, he redeemed us. Look at verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Now, we take that posture in order to redeem a lost and dying world that needs to hear that message and see it embodied in our lives. May God help us to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have instituted human government. We are grateful that it's your idea that fallen kingdoms of this world should have order and should have justice in part displayed in them. And we pray for that in our own country. We lament in many ways the conditions that are present. We acknowledge they are absolutely under your sovereign control. But nevertheless, we lament the, the discourse and the things that are named 
good that are now counted evil and the things that are evil that are now named good? Would you work? Would you work in our country through your church as your church displays salt and light to a dying and decaying world that the only hope of a true and lasting city will not be in building this republic up ultimately, but will be found in the kingdom of God that's the city that is to come. So even as we look and long for that city, help us to be the best kinds of citizens of this earthly city that you've called us to be. Help us to be those who speak the truth in love, who, are, who honor everyone, who willingly embrace unjust suffering, and yes, courageously defend the values that are yours in the midst of a culture that is increasingly hostile toward them. May we be willing to take what comes, but may we never do it in a spirit that is worldly, but may we do it in a spirit that is Christ-like and redemptive. For we ask all these na- things in the, in the name of the King who is presently reigning and who will one day come to reign in fullness over a world where peace and justice and righteousness will reign. Even so, come Lord Jesus as we rise and sing to you. Amen.